0: Welcome to the Political Philosophy Podcast. I'm Toby Buckle. In this week's episode I'll be discussing the ethics and ethical costs of the beauty ideal with Professor Heather Widows and we'll talk both about the good and the bad that comes from our ideas of beauty and also how those concerns match with or don't match with traditional liberal ways of thinking about choice. We also get into, at the end, some of our thoughts about how to theorise feelings of shame and humiliation. We actually talked for a little bit before we hit record, and it turns out this is something that both of us have been interested in, and so we agreed to set aside a portion of the conversation for that, and I'm really glad we did because I've covered this in solo episodes but it's really useful to be able to talk to someone else who's thought seriously about this in real time and kind of get their thoughts and feedback so I really really um, appreciated that and um, I think in general both on the shame and humiliation side and also on um, the sort of ethical ideal of beauty side um, Professor Widows was just a really fantastic, well-qualified guest for this, um, who, if you haven't heard of her work before, I'm excited for you to get acquainted with it here. So uh, Professor Widows is the John Ferguson Professor of Global Ethics and the Deputy Pro-Vice Chancellor for Research Impact at Birmingham University. In this role, she seeks to support and extend the impact of Birmingham's research across policy, cultural and industrial sectors. Her track record shows her commitment to public engagement and work with policymakers. And she served as a member of the UK Biobank Ethics and Governance Council, the Philosophy REF panel, and is currently a member of the Nuffield Council on Bioethics. She's currently working on the increasing demands of beauty in which she examines in her latest book Perfect Me, Beauty as an Ethical Ideal, and her ongoing research into A Duty to be Beautiful. She co-runs the Beauty Demands blog, a research network addressing the changing requirements of beauty, and has founded the Everyday Lookism campaign, which is um, something we talk about a bit in this interview. Uh, prior to this project she's ran multidisciplinary grants on property regulation in European science ethics and law, the ethics of governance of human tissue, and collaborated on grants on terrorism and trust. So I think you'll agree a really really fantastic guest who I was lucky to get some time with to talk with uh, both about her primary work and some other areas of of, um, mutual interest. Just before we get started, as always, big thank you to everyone who sponsors the podcast on Patreon. So, as you may well know, we do not do any paid advertisements on this show. We have no sponsors, no institutional backers. All of the costs associated with this podcast are covered voluntarily by listeners, so I've been saying if you like this show, consider a suggested donation of $2 an episode. So, if the episode you're about to listen to is as valuable to you as a cup of coffee, then consider sponsoring it on that basis. That's very easy to set up and to manage on patreon.com-political-philosophy-podcast, patreon.com-political-philosophy-podcast. If you're not able to financially support, and I know there's certainly a lot of people in um, difficult circumstances now through no fault of their own, um, then absolutely no worries. The whole point of this setup is anyone can listen for free, but if you would like to help the show but can't do so financially, just sharing it or recommending it to friends is also a Really, really powerful way that you can support it. And the more shares we get, and the more sort of social media buzz that we get, and the more followers that we get, the more that enables me to continue to book really like world class guests. I think some of the people, I was going to say some of the people I've been talking to recently, but a lot of the guests I've had on for a while now are really like world-leading authorities on these topics, and while in general academics are generous with their time, being able to tell people you'll reach this many listeners, or then being able to see that you know we have a social media presence and stuff, really just does help to um, continue to get really, really high-quality guests. So. Sharing our stuff, commenting online, recommending to friends um, helps support the show, um, but it also helps make the show better. It's a little bit of extra ammunition for me um, when I'm booking guests to really be able to get, like I say, world-leading experts on a particular topic on. And, as always, to anyone who does any of that stuff, Uh, be it sponsoring or sharing or both, um, really big genuine thank you, like you're making this project possible and because of your support I'm able to bring you these engaged in-depth interesting conversations for free, going out advertisement free to really you know tens of thousands of people, anyone who is interested in them. So if you're supporting in any way, you are awesome, and thank you for doing that. And as a final note, um, if you wish to purchase Political Philosophy Podcast merchandise, we have a store for that now. Uh, Check out our website, politicalphilosophypodcast.com, politicalphilosophypodcast.com. Links to all of that are on there. Apart from that, let's get straight to it. This episode is Beauty, Shame and Humiliation with Professor Heather Widows. I am joined today by Professor Heather Widows. Professor, thanks so much for coming on today.
1: My pleasure. Thank you for having me.
0: So, for listeners who haven't heard of you before, um, what do you do? What do you like to read and write and teach and think about?
1: So, I work in the philosophy department at the University of Birmingham, where I've spent Around 20 years working on various aspects of moral philosophy, particularly women's rights, genetic justice, global justice, and my last five to 10 years, I've been working on beauty.
0: How did you um, How did you get into beauty as a topic? Um, I'm not at all saying it's not important. I'm saying it's not one of the most centrally studied topics in moral philosophy right so how did how did you come onto that as an area of specialization
1: Right. So when you think about global justice, then you don't automatically think of beauty as your number one topic, do you? No, for sure. And quite a few people did say to me, gosh, how have you ended up working on this and stopped working on all those important issues of poverty and body part sale? And I guess my answer to that is the more you look at this, the more you realise that it is an issue of justice, too. It's definitely not a rich issue. Problem only. So, some of the poorest women in the world, not only do they engage in beauty, but arguably they have to engage in it more. And um, to give examples, so I was at a different um, conference, I was at a global justice and development conference, and one of the development workers I met there started talking to me about women swapping their antiretrovirals in the poorest places in the world for skin lightening cream. And um, I found those kind of stories repeated everywhere. So the more you look, the more you see that, in fact, beauty is an issue of justice too. And it's one that's increasingly dominant, especially the younger you are, the more you fall in selfie culture and visual culture. Beauty is truly defining like so many issues of who we are, what we can be and what we can do. And if that's not an issue of justice, I don't know what is.
0: Okay, um, what's give me the 50,000-yard view. What are the central claims you want to make about what beauty is and what work, for good or ill, it's doing in the world?
1: Cool, so I make um, four main arguments about beauty in Perfect Me. The first one, which is the one that, as a moral philosopher, is a piece that I bring to the party that none of the other disciplines do, is about the ethical nature of the beauty ideal. Um, morality is all over beauty when you start looking at it you know things like oh you're worth it you let yourself go you deserve it it's quite hard to get away from the moral tone of beauty language I don't think it's there by accident. So the one of the the main claim I bring out in perfect me is that part of what's going on is that we have beauty functioning very much as an ethical ideal by which I mean very similar things to the things that other people mean by ethical ideals. The value framework against which we judge ourselves and others good and bad, succeeding or failing. And I make the claim that that's actually something very new, right? That's not how we used to um, view ourselves, which is the second argument of of perfect me, that in a very real way, what we think of ourselves has shifted to the body, both as a proxy for values and character, but then also sometimes as a collapsing such that it really is a vice to let yourself go, and that that's becoming increasingly dominant, Um, A third argument is about the scope of the beauty ideal, that we've never before had a global beauty ideal, and that's really significant because it changes practices from adornment practices or beautifying practices into things that are like health or hygiene practices necessary to be normal so it allows the demands of beauty to rise but rise in a kind of stealthy way where you hardly notice so I, I talk about it being a greedy ideal so it gradually sucks more into it and yet in a way that it's quite hard to call out And then that's the second lot of arguments in the books that very many of the ways that we've explained beauty in the past, that it's gender exploitation or the kind of debate between on the one side, it's coercion, on the other side, it's pure choice. None of these work very well to explain what's going on now so that even though when I started writing Perfect Me or thinking about writing it, I thought I'd be reviving a lot of those second wave feminist arguments and updating them, actually... When you start looking very closely at the evidence, the evidence from the medics, from the psychologists, from the sociologists, and you start listening to the lived experience of young women and men, it's quite hard to make those arguments run in the ways that they used to. So I end up making a very different argument that, in fact, as it becomes more of an ethical ideal, less of those things hold, and we need to look much more closely at what's going on and come up with other theoretical
0: frameworks to explain it. Could you give me a sort of concrete case of um, a sort of second wave way of looking at it that, like, doesn't hold in light of um, the, 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 say, the first claim you made about the functioning of beauty as an ethical ideal? Like, what, 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 what do you have in mind when you say it does that the old frameworks don't hold?
1: I think the old frameworks don't hold um so one example would be you claim that that beauty is just something that's done um as a form of gender exploitation so key to that claim there um, and to any exploitation claim right that the, the way that that argument is structured works around a need for a hierarchy a asymmetry, some difference in power between the exploited group and the exploited group right so classically you'd say about beauty that uh, it's something that men don't have to do but women do have to do and then it's a kind of double whammy so um, women have to do it they have to learn this incredibly large skill set but then it's a belittled and subservient skill set because it's a trivial skill set so it's a kind of double whammy men don't have to do it and yet it's actually very demanding but even when women do it they are belittled and trivialized for doing it so that's your, your general way it works but when you look at what's happening to beauty you find that um, appearance is becoming more demanding across demographics Right, so up and down the power hierarchies, everybody's doing more. So if I was if I was uh, giving a soundbite to a journalist about this, I would I would say things like, "Well, you know, um, the footballer's wife might be doing more than her mother did a generation ago, but the footballer's doing more too, and and that holds across." So I'm not saying by any means that there are no gender differences. There are all kinds of gender differences, but on this one axis of doing body work, we're all doing more body work and we're all being judged for it more. Um, and that doesn't fit with what we thought was going to happen at all.
0: No. I mean, just for me personally, my experience of this would be the, the sort of expectation to look a certain way as a man. is still way out of line with what it is for a woman, but it's changed. It's changed since like I was a teenager. There, there, there's something there now. That wasn't there before. Right. Or maybe it, it, it's, it's different and it's uneven and different men it hits in different ways. But it... This, it I, I couldn't, like, cash it out as nicely as you have. But there's... Definitely a sort of set of expectations there that are not a sort of, like, classical toxic male machismo thing. It's not quite that either, you know what I mean? Like, something's being mapped onto us that's presumably been mapped onto women for longer and in a much harder way, you know?
1: Right, that's exactly right. So appearance is just mattering more for young men and young boys, and as you say, it cashes out differently. Right, it's still not the same. What falls on a on a middle aged man is not the same as what falls on a middle aged woman, and of course that changes by demographic groups anyway. Right, it, you know, it, it, it cashes out out in lots of different ways. But it is the case that um, young men are feeling the pressure to do more. So around a third of eating disorders now are young men which was absolutely unexpected before we get uh, young men reporting so for instance in a recent survey in the UK um, appearance was the second most important issue for both men and male and female respondents um, and some of the ideals that you're finding so you know it, I map in Perfect Me a global beauty ideal for women and um, characterized by the four features of thinness firmness smoothness and youth so it's a range it's not it's not a blueprint It's, it's a it's a range that's narrowing when you look for men there's no global equivalent right the only feature that tracks is tallness that's the only one so you know we don't have anything like the same thing we don't have a global ideal for men but we do have more and more concern for doing body work for having to measure up to a certain ideal and there are lots of different ideals for men still right you know things like you know i'm i'm fascinated by body hair right i think it, it, it i talk about it as the canary in the mine but men are still allowed much many more variations of body hair and facial hair compared to women for example right and that's true across but when you look at some of the images that men are increasingly aspiring to so the muscles bound one is increasingly dominant and that actually has a lot in common with the female norm so you know the female thin with curves with firmness and smoothness so while the muscle bound norm is definitely not thin it is incredibly over demanding right it's one that you have to do an awful lot of work with so just as I argue that increasingly to make the beauty ideal you have to have intervention right so to be thin with curves then you either have to diet incredibly hard and do an awful lot of body work in the gym to build the right curves in the right places or you need to diet and then have implants right and that it's increasingly hard to make the male norms without having that kind of intervention whether it's steroids exercise or cosmetic surgery and intervention so increasingly we end up in this place where you have to have stuff done to make the ideal at the top And at the bottom, you have to have stuff done just to be normal. And that's my kind of fascination with things like body hair. So if you look back not many generations, you will find that um, body hair is much more acceptable in various kinds of ways. And it's certainly not seen as abnormal or unnatural right whereas now we can talk about body hair and um, often people will say things like oh yuck well you know women can do what they want with their bodies but if I was in a changing room and I saw a woman with leg hair or arm hair I might stand 10 feet away from them Right. So there's this kind of interesting norm, like in the same breath, right, women know that you, you're not supposed to say things about other people's bodies. You're not supposed to tell people what to do because it's all down to individual choice. Right. But on the other hand, they're moralizing it and finding it disgusting and dirty. And of course, this is body hair. Right. It's the opposite of that. It, it's actually unnatural not to have body hair if we're strictly speaking, talking. And yet you can't even see that practice for many women now. They no longer think of that as beautifying. They think of that as health. Or hygiene just to be normal and you see that flip happening with all kinds of beauty practices as gradually more and more is required
0: to be normal so I I'm, I'm is, asked, is like, there any health or hygiene reason I'm, I'm, I'm not, to think that there's any particular health costs to body hair because presumably if they there are they go for men as much as women right if, if like sorry sorry
1: sorry I'm um. Getting carried away. That there, there, um, there, there are health costs to removing your body hair. Right. Um, so there's all kinds of, of um, you know. So if you overpluck, um, there's all kinds of issues about um, uh, having uh, infections, um, ingrowing hairs, blocked hairs. We have all kinds of burns from laser treatments, um, and of course, pubic hair particularly um, has a role in. Uh, ensuring uh, temperatures and hygiene and things are kept so in fact we have the opposite right we, it's more likely that you damage your health by over Um and completely anecdotally um, I have um, I have very strange dinner conversations uh, <laughs> but I um, I have been told um, that the more you the more you remove pubic hair and the older you get the more prone skin is to tearing right so that's completely anecdotal because I happened to be at a, a dinner party and talking to somebody who was a beautician who started so there's no one I don't have a great amount of empirical research for that but it would seem likely that in fact removing body hair probably doesn't add to your health status and if you look at various other things that are switching there so um yeah i'm quite interested in large pores right because we're increasingly told if you if you got, walk down a, a chemist or pharmacist and look at what you're beauty creams promise you they promise you all kinds of high-tech stuff and again this is about the smoothness the second feature you know so they will do things like erase and resurface and 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 things that are more fitting to a construction site than to human skin but they will not just like right, smooth and moisturize your face they will erase wrinkles lighten dark spots and they will minimize your large pores now this is the kind of the, the gradual heightening of what is required to be normal so my mother didn't know that large paws were a beauty flaw but my daughter she surely will and when then when she's making up to take her selfie pictures and the kind of things that now we have to do at the moment we're in in lockdown still for coronavirus. So increasingly, people are doing this for Zoom or for their school classrooms where they're obsessing over having this smooth skin, which is a a high-tech skin. It's like a technical gaze. It's the skin of HD television or a virtual culture. Human beings, when they're really looking at each other, they don't notice these flaws, but as we increasingly live in this technical gaze, we do notice these supposed flaws. And once we've seen these flaws, we can be sold stuff to um, to sort them out and correct them. And so the kind of spiral continues as we gradually notice more flaws that we have to fix just to be normal. And then it isn't about beautifying or about choosing to do something creative. It's entirely about, oh my goodness, getting up to that minimal normal.
0: It's so interesting that the, the um, pause one is one of my insecurities, and then again, like the standards put on me are probably quite trivial compared to, to most women. But it is interesting, I sort of look in the mirror and I notice I've got, like on my sort of nose and cheeks like really wide pause. and without anyone prompting me, without anyone shaming me. I've sort of gone and bought these various products, there's these little strips you can put across your, your nose, I don't know if you've ever seen them, and I've found myself doing this, you know, again, without really anyone having to tell me, you should have to do this, like like a sort of, as philosophers would say, like a sort of social tyranny, you know, um... Before, before we get to, to that, um, do you want to give... If you take all of what you've said, the, the ethical ideal and the, the globalising particularly, um, we talked about some of the costs. Do you want to try and give us a sense of what the total impact, good and bad, and I'm guessing you're going to talk mostly bad, about beauty becoming ethical and beauty becoming globalised has been? Like, if I'm if I'm just a pure utilitarian... And I'm just saying, OK, what's the net sum of happiness that's happened here? Um, what's what, what's your sort of overall um, answer to that?
1: OK, so I guess the first thing I want to say is that you're right. I'm very worried about the harms, but I do think that beauty is a mixed ideal. Right. So compared to some of the things that I've worked on, like some of the um body part sale things where I think it's all just terribly harmful. Um, there are some really positive things about beauty and I do talk about it as a mixed ideal, right? It's um it is empowering and it is devastating. Right. It has all kinds of, of positive features. So I think people who say it's all harmful, right, they have they're failing just as much as those who say, oh, it's so great individual choice and creativity, right? It's not, it's neither of the two. It's definitely somewhere in the middle. Um, And the positive things about beauty, there are those kind of um, empowering, pampering things, although I think that's much less... um, than is often made out but there are all kinds of social connection things to do with beauty partly because of the status that beauty has that we don't always recognize so examples that I use in the book are things like sometimes the only touch that you may have that is not health or sexual is the beauty touch right it's a a society sanctioned touch so if you're in an old people's home for instance the only time you may be touched in a non- Healthcare way is the massage from the hairdresser once a week when they wash your hair right so there's all kinds of very embodied things about beauty that gives us permission to do uh, it's also one of the ways that we do friendship talk that we do intergenerational talk there's lots of um, lots of kind of, kind of social embeddedness to beauty that would be a great loss if we took it away so it's not that there are not other ways for doing that kind of touching and nurturing but at the moment it is the way that we do it so i think there are significant social and communal benefits the beauty as well as lots of individual ones and um, as we live in a visual and virtual culture it's only going to get more dominant so people are not crazy or wrong to think it matters it does matter they know it matters so when we say things to our kids like oh it's what's on the inside that counts right they know we're lying in their culture they're lying right so we need to, to recognize that it does matter we maybe wish it didn't But it does. And we need to deal with that. Um, And maybe as philosophers, we're particularly bad at that because perhaps it matters less in our little philosophy bubble than it does in very many people's bubbles. And the more you move down the power hierarchies, the more it matters. So the less you have other goods, the more beauty matters and I think we've been really bad at taking that seriously and not recognizing the privilege that allows us to pretend it doesn't matter when for very many people and indeed I think increasingly for all of us it does so there are lots of positives so I'm just going to say that first then I'm going to move to the harms. so the biggest harm I think is the the, um, impact of what I Describe as, and I don't think in a kind of over dramatic way, as a, an epidemic of body image anxiety and just how devastating that has become so you know it's not controversial to claim that there are all kinds of mental health consequences attached to body dissatisfaction and to high body image anxiety and this is now so widespread that we almost describe it as normal right we think there's something odd about somebody who is not dissatisfied with their body right we feel slightly uncomfortable when somebody isn't unhappy with something um and That's increasing Um, every time you look at the empirical evidence, you will find that um, not just young people, but young people are studied most here, um, will do report all kinds of things that they don't do because of body image anxiety, from speaking up in class to doing physical exercise. Um, The fact that we know what a bad hair day is says something about just how prevalent that is. So it's always treated as trivial because, um, oh, it's just beauty, oh, it's just fluffy pink stuff, right? But in fact, if you look at just how devastating body image anxiety is, what it stops us doing and how it contains us, then, then I think that in itself, cumulatively, is a massive cost. And then you've got those other sort of standard justice costs that you would talk about as a justice theorist, which are things like the opportunity costs, right? What would we do if we didn't do beauty? So when you start putting the beauty industry together, from everything from diet and exercise to fashion and makeup to cosmetic surgery, right, and then you put it next to some of the other global trades that we worry about, like arms trades, and you know you begin to wonder, wow, what is it that we could do if we weren't doing quite so much of this? So there's, 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 there's some very standard justice issues that apply to beauty as a section of global trade that apply to others. And then there's some real harms um, involved in the um, body image anxiety rising. And then if you take what I'm saying about the demands rising and globally rising and in a way that they gradually become invisible because as things switch from beauty practices to health and hygiene practices, no longer to adorn, but just to be normal, if, if I'm right about that and that's rising then we could, before very long, end up in a a future where a routinely incredibly modified body is the normal body. So you can see that trend in some places. So Diana Berkowitz, she talks about Botox in the US being like um, hair brushing or teeth cleaning, that normalised. We've already got some cultures where cosmetic surgery is normalised, just a rite of passage, so South Korea and Lebanon being the most obvious ones. It doesn't require much to think that this train keeps running then in the pursuit of perfect me we're going to spend an awful lot of time modifying our body when we could be doing other things
0: so there are definite benefits but there also are some pretty steep harms and harms we might have good reason to think are increasing rather than decreasing so in terms of like addressing those harms and like getting some of the good with hopefully a minimization of the bad, what are the best frameworks to think about that from? Because you've, I saw one of your talks where you were quite critical of, like, a sort of, I guess you could say, like, classically liberal sort of choice and consent way of thinking about that, and, well, I'll actually just pause there, like, um, um do you feel like a choice and consent framework is appropriate and sufficient for thinking about how to remedy these harms
1: yes so, i mean i i guess no is the short answer no no i don't um, <laughs> so, um, so, I better, so i better give you some reasons for that cause otherwise um That's just going to (laughs) stand. A number of things that I think is uh, ineffective. So one of the things that I think is ineffective, and why I don't like the choice and consent model, is because it's always reduced to the individual model. So that's about whether individuals choose or consent to engage or not. And I just think that very little of this is about the individual, and it's more about the culture. So I think it is both ineffectual and unethical to look at what individuals do or don't do, and put it on them so uh, as I've begun to say a little bit about why philosophy is bad at this I think it's partly bad at this because it doesn't recognize quite as much how much one's situation and lived experience allows one the possibility of what to consent to or not right so um, I think we should be looking much more at culture change um, in terms of addressing this so if you look at at, um, all kinds of people lower down some of those power hierarchies you will often find that um, you know the notion that you suddenly will um, resist on your own is, is just a bizarre one. You know that already requires you, I think, to be in a relatively privileged community where it's completely acceptable not to engage in beauty, for you not to engage, right? And so I think so much about the um, choice and consent model ignores the wider structural situations and the fact that very often this is about where one is situated, what one has a choice to do or not do. So I think it wrongly um, puts it on the individual. I think it's unethical because I think it asks uh, people in more difficult positions to do more and in ways that would be completely um, uh, unimaginable in their context. And I also think it doesn't work, right? It's completely ineffective. So we have been saying to people... um, You know, about beauty. Oh, you know, this is just a way of putting you down. Just stop doing it. Just resist. Right. We know it doesn't work. And in fact, um, completely against what um, second wave feminists were predicting. We were predicting that as women had uh, better careers, more education, more of our own money, we would be doing less of this because we wouldn't feel the need to be capitulating more to to um, male stereotypes or i'm being a bit flippant here but not that much right and then the opposite happened right the more money that we have the more independence we have the more we do beauty right and then in fact the more that men do beauty too right so those frameworks they just didn't work so not only do i think it's unethical because i think it falls more heavily on those further down power hierarchies but it's also ineffective if you want to address the harms of beauty then we should not start by looking at what individuals do and don't do so if you don't do it you know, there's this tendency to sort of feel smug and like you're outside it, right? But then those who do do it are looking at you, thinking, well, "Why on earth are you doing this? This thing that is that is fun, that is empowering. That you know, and and those are real lived experiences. And if you're at the other side and you're doing it, you're not feeling suddenly empowered by not doing it. Um, And there's a sense in which it's just not true. And all it does is it makes us uh, throw stones at each other. So those who do throw stones at those who don't and vice versa. And none of us addresses the culture. And it just ends up in a silencing gambit. It's just yet again, um, one group of women criticising another group of women for what they do or don't do. And I just think it's the absolutely the wrong place to start. We need to start by looking at how we change the culture so that there's less pressure to do these things and maybe we're less obsessed with who does and who doesn't do them. So, my final chapter of Perfect Me is called Beauty Without the Beast, right? Because I do want to rescue some of these positive things about beauty. And I think it's just as false to claim that everything to do with beauty is um, some harmful, evil practice. You know, just that's, you know, it seems to me that actually. one of the things that is positive about beauty is the recognition of the body and embodied beings. And I think as philosophers, we've been very guilty at thinking that we're all, you know, the whole kind of ghosts in the machine um, image, right, as if selves are all minds. So so I think that um, we don't want our bodies to be ourselves, right? That's a pretty poor sense of what human beings are. But nor do we want ourselves not to be embodied and not recognize those, you know, uh, truly positive bits about human beings because you know one of the problems with lockdown as we're all finding is that not seeing and touching and, and engaging with people physically has a cost right and that has a cost because we're not just mine so I want to get somewhere in the middle of there so it's not all about individual choice because it doesn't all fall on the individual it's more about the communal issue the responses have to be communal how do we change the culture such that it doesn't feel like this is what we
0: have to do Okay so I have a thought and a question and I'll try to be as concise as I can with this but it's sort of a it's a big thought and a big question. Um so I prep a lot of different interviews on different areas and occasionally I sort of find one set of thoughts bleeding into another. So I was doing a bit of work on like the history of liberalism and something I've talked to people a lot about and I think there's sort of been like a hollowing out of liberalism um, to the point where it all reduces to individuality or it's all just a sort of like thin negative liberty, or, like, it's all just, even on the left, a sort of, like, quite shallow universalism, where it's like, you know, don't discriminate in job interviews and stuff, which is fine as it goes. I'm just saying it feels... Whereas, if I go back to, say, John Stuart Mill, Everyone Remembers the Harm Principle, but in On Liberty, about half of that book is about social thoughts and opinions, and how modes of being a quote a tyranny that constrains the very soul can be just as prohibitive of a true sort of autonomous freedom as laws and regulations and there was a quote that came back to me um uh, from that book that i thought matched this perfectly he says the narrow little boxes human personalities are forced to confine themselves in um sort of, I'm paraphrasing here, but to spare them the trouble of doing the work of building their own character. And I just sort of wonder if Mill was around today. It's always a bit sketchy to talk about what a historical figure would think. But I I mean, just from my interpretation, a globalised beauty ideal that is one thing, or sort of one set of things, and is quite geared towards whiteness above a lot of other things, is quite geared towards something that is maybe not really natural. I think that's type one for what Mill's talking about, of like one of those narrow little boxes, right? And it does seem like that broader sort of liberalism that um I think you can find in other thinkers of that period, that yes, has individuality and choice, but it's individuality... occurs within a social context and can be either supported or constrained by a social context, that second half has just really receded in prominence in more modern liberalisms. Like, you don't find Rawls talking about that stuff very much, you know, or something they certainly wouldn't find like Hayek or someone like that talking about that stuff. So that's my thought. My question is, when we talk about the inadequacies of choice and consent models as we currently talk about them and practice them. Are we talking about a failure of a particular type of liberalism or a failure of where liberalism has gone in the modern world? Or are we talking about a failure of liberalism as a model of thinking, period? So, sort of, my thought would be: there's a lot of older liberalisms that would seem to speak to these concerns quite well. Um or am I wrong in that and it's actually a failure of the Liberal Project generally?
1: So that that's a very interesting both thought and question. Uh, if I go back to the thought first, I do think that we have an incredibly thin version of liberalism that is almost such a caricature, it's not liberalism, right? And that's just a way of, I think, Window dressing very unethical things and very harmful practices, but in a way where we can't criticize them because they've been chosen. So, um, throughout my work, whether it's on you know genetics or body part sale or you know my right, women's rights stuff, I'm always talking about thin models of choice and consent and how they are hiding unethical practice. So, you can see this most clearly, I think, in medical ethics. Where effectively we have got to the point where the fact that somebody has chosen something and consented is seen as the only thing that matters. So I talk about, um, you know, that choice and consent is not fairy dust. Um, and when my daughter was very little, I had a flashing picture of Tinkerbell that I used to put up on on the screen anytime she came to a talk, um, because there is there this sense in which, you know, it has it has become so hollowed out. Was the words you used, and that's absolutely right. It's become almost meaningless and autonomy has become equated with and reduced to mere choice. Um, And that's no version of liberalism that any of those thinkers would have endorsed, nor would have been, nor is any kind of robust or reasonable theory. And yet it has become absolutely um, how, in very many practical ways, we do ethics and certainly how we justify all kinds of... um, Uh, beauty practices and many other practices but simply because it's chosen does not mean that that was autonomous in any of those bigger ways nor in the social context Uh, so I like uh, there's um, a wonderful uh, sociologist Deborah Gimlin Um, who unfortunately um, has passed away a couple of years ago, who wrote beautifully about this, you know, the I'm doing it for me as your learned narrative, right? The only acceptable narrative in certain contexts, and again, this changes from context to context, is that I'm doing it for me. And that then becomes um, uh, simply um, a way of justifying in in a Choice society, but I don't think it's um I don't think this is a liberal society in that sense at all. It's about a way of doing individual consumption in a particularly liberal way. So I do think there'll be lots in those earlier to come to your question. I think that it's more of a failure um, of us to call the gradual switch of how um liberalism protects autonomy and recognises personhood. That has we've allowed that to become hollowed out as if we haven't noticed that it's become so thin and that it's not doing any more the work of moral status or social cohesion or any of the things that it was supposed to do in the first instance. I, I feel like it's a failure of
0: both the political left and the political right, I'm going to, like, big picture stuff now, but, like, on the political right, I mean, since the sort of Hayekian revolution of, like, Reagan and Thatcher, their, I mean, their economic thinking certainly has just been completely captured by a sort of doctrinaire libertarianism, right? Um, and But even on the left, if I think about the sort of third-way centrism of Blair or... Clinton, or something like that. There's an individualism there, there's a sort of universalizability type thing going on, we're all in it together and stuff. Um, But the sort of real sort of fire and brimstone liberalism that talks about the you know, the ends of man as a progressive being, or that talks about development in a very aggressive way, or talks about progress in a very aggressive way, or talks about social cohesion in a very aggressive way, it just suddenly got very uncomfortable with making any of those sorts of claims that did a lot of work in, say, building welfare states and stuff like that. It's just, the sort of compromises we made on the left weren't just practical. It wasn't just, oh, okay, we'll accept that a a sort of balanced market economy is the way to go. They were theoretical and ideological and values-driven. We sort of accepted a, a falling away of the more robust parts of liberalism and social democratic theory. And I don't think it's an accident we've been less successful in changing the world since that happened. I don't know, that was an editorial comment.
1: I think I think that could be well true. I think I think we gave up. We we we, we gave up our ideology. Um, we bought the individualism and not uh, not a, not an individualism of a collective of individuals. But I think we bought the libertarian individualism that says no matter what you choose is fine, right? And somehow we bought the next bit of that thought, which is the bit that I think is false. That because you choose it, we can say anything about the nature of that choice, right? That choice in itself matters. In a way that 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 those who were promoting the welfare state and building communities in which individuals could flourish in never believed, right? You know, the notion that choice matters purely on its own as choice, rather than it matters what the content of that choice is, and whether those choices are are um, are are things that will deliver whether they will make you flourish they are good choices to have right that that bit disappeared right and we and we we didn't fight that we just accepted that claim that oh because somebody's chosen it that in itself is valuable and that that was a very very strange thing for the left to accept and somehow we are struggling to name it let alone undo it and that's when my starts blurring into my activism
0: (laughs) so let's let's move through to that (laughs) because I can put it much more simply Um, what got lost was the thought that choice because in Mill he's very explicit choice can be constrained by political power structures and choice can be constrained by prevailing modes of opinion and like what society finds acceptable or unacceptable so he's not giving up on choice it's just a richer conception and I think in modern philosophy not not all of it definitely in like feminist theory and stuff but like that sense of like the central importance of like social modes of opinion has just disappeared so this this brings me through to the next bit which is like what should philosophy be concerning itself with and what should it be thinking about and doing because you know i'm host political philosophy podcast there's an there's a very easy out there which is it was political philosophy so it's about philosophizing about formal political structures and that feels like a bit of a there's a trap door beneath that answer um so anyway that was let me go back to you what should in, in light of that conversation what should philosophy be doing and focusing on
1: right so i i think Um, philosophy should be focusing on making the world better, right? It it seems to me there's no point being a a moral and political philosopher if you don't want to make the world better. Now, there's obviously all kinds of dangers in that. But the notion that we should study these things without a passionate commitment to doing things with what we study, I, I find very bizarre. So I have always been involved in, in policy stuff, in activism, um, and I see that as as wholly connected to my intellectual passions, right? It's not for nothing that I write about women's rights and bodies, um, it, it, you know, I, I, and I I cannot imagine. So I have lots of respect for very many of my colleagues who do very very different types of philosophy um you yeah, know so i have a, a colleague who works on time travel travel and i have been to many papers on things as, as um obscure as time traveling bricks right and i i don't expect you know that to have quite the same um application to actually getting involved but i think that if i stopped my philosophy at the writing of the article or the book and didn't go on to try and do the changing of the policy agenda or the activism to change individual lives then I would not be doing
0: what I should be doing. So what do you do? Do you want to tell us a bit about some of your activism and what you've been trying to achieve?
1: So, uh, so i've done all kinds of stuff so um gradually over the many years i have been on all kinds of policy um ethics and governance committees from uk biobank to i recently finished um a full six years uh, on the nuffield council on bioethics which is kind of the uk's equivalent to a national ethics committee um currently um i have um, starting engaging in social media activism which is a complete shock to the system so so i'm somebody that has never before even been on facebook but actually the way it turns out that you reach young women is instagram and we're now looking at tiktok so we're running a big everyday luckism campaign which is modeled on the very successful everyday sexism campaign which is people calling out their luckism stories so all those horrible nasty things that people say that body shame people are putting out there anonymously in order to just like the sexism campaign show that it's not okay to make those body shaming comments and also to try and do so um one of the things that political philosophy and um does really well is it helps us name injustices so one of wonderful things i think about the way that feminist philosophy and activism work together and named sexist practices um is that before you had the names for those things you may have been uncomfortable when your, you know your bum was pinched in the office in a kind of madman uh, um 50s 60s sexist behavior but you might not have known quite how to call it out right I think that's at the point we're at now with body shaming comments right so we know we don't like it we know it makes us uncomfortable we know it silences and humiliates us Um, and the everyday lookism stories they tell you that really clearly we have so many stories from people who report a nasty comment and then say you know that was 40 years ago or that's still with me half a lifetime later right there's no sense in which these are just you know that thing that that mothers used to say you know sticks and stones can break your bones Right. But words will never hurt you. Words hurt and they hurt deeply. And the more that our um, appearance matters in a visual and virtual culture. And if I'm right and our bodies are ourselves and that beauty is becoming an ethical ideal, then the more those kind of comments are going to cut deeply and cut of the self right the shame is quite literally be shamed of yourself that's what's going on with a lot of these body shaming comments so so somehow i found myself involved with um social media i've been and spoken at the um uh, anti-diet riot fest and various of uh, the kind of strange spaces that i that i didn't know existed and that are full of very passionate people really trying to make a difference um and are very very under theorized right you get you know and 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 these and people are looking for answers and theories and understandings and ways forward so it's actually a very exciting and rewarding space to be in
0: yeah and again this goes to like the sort of theoretical discussion of what we were having is if you see the point of political philosophy is to do the philosophy of formalized political structures, then it just won't occur to you to try and do the philosophy of that other set of constraints on individual action and autonomy that come from um, prevailing norms and modes and social conformity pressures. Um you you mentioned two words there that I'm very interested in, shame and humiliation. Do you want to give me just, like, some initial thoughts about how you think about those two forces in relation to beauty and, like, what they're doing in the world? Like, what what is happening when we talk about shame or someone being humiliated? I think the words are actually a little bit different, but I'll let you go first.
1: So I think you you probably know more about this than me, and have thought more about how to define and differentiate these. So I use these in a number of ways. First of all, I use them as part of the, the evidence that beauty is becoming an ethical ideal, right? So you know, I think of shame and praise and blame as fundamentally moral emotions that attach to um, that, that 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 always attach to the ethical frameworks that you have. So they're part of showing what you value and how important it is to you. So I use the rise in body shame as opposed to other kinds of shame as partly proof that's some of what's going on. So the kind of guilt that you might feel at being called out for being badly dressed or being um, fat shamed i more similar to what previous generations might have felt for being accused of being not honourable or a liar or, you know, things that, that you know, there's, a, there's, a, there's a, uh, a weightiness to it as things tip from being a, a prudential value or a, a, a some other kind of um, element that, that is part of what makes life go well, but it's not fundamental, it's not defining of you. So shame of the self is one of the things that we talk about with bodies now that, is different um from previous generations so that's one way that i use it And then the other way that I've used it is much more in this very practical way as I looked for ways in which to do some kind of culture change because Perfect Me finishes at the point where you're looking for ways in which, okay, so if we're not going to do this calling out individuals for what they do and don't do because it doesn't work for all the reasons I've talked about and it's unethical and actually ultimately it's shaming too, what do we do? So one of the things that we have done is ended up in this place where what we're trying to address is the the shame that surrounds this. So one of the ways that you can take the heat down almost and therefore hopefully create a better culture is to um, point out the um, completely unhelpful, negative and destructive work that shame does, right? Shame. So this is where I'd be interested to see what you want to say about the difference between shame and humiliation, because I think part of the shaming is directly to humiliate, is to pull somebody down, is to make them um, feel um, uncomfortable, unstable unable to speak right the silencing um aspect of shaming is quite high in, in that's always been true in feminist literature but if i look at the everyday lookism stories the way that people report having that those comments having just stopped them in their tracks and then stopped them doing things ever again is really high so there's all kinds of as a mechanism shame is a very effective way of shutting people up and pushing them out of the space
0: yeah um so I've got a proposition here um it's a little bit different from traditional interview structure I'm going to run through a few definitions of stuff that I have and instead of putting a question mark at the end of them I encourage you to jump in to tell me if you think I'm talking utter dog shit or like if um there's an additional thought you have or want to build so feel free to just interject whenever yeah So, I'm going to come back to just one thing you said that I wrote down, which you said proof that that's what's going on. So, I think shame and humiliation are, they're not entirely, but they're enforcement mechanisms. They're enforcements of particular values or social norms or stuff like that, and... They're honestly as good or bad, well, humiliation. Humiliation's necessarily wrong, in my view. But shame can be positive and negative. So, like, I could say to you, like, oh, your your makeup doesn't look very good today, and I'm trying to, like, shame you, and that's negative because the norm I'm trying to make you conform to, we might say, might not be a very good norm. But conversely, you could say to me, Toby, you lied when you could have told the truth. That's really disappointing. And that might not be a bad thing. You're, you're shaming me to conform with a social norm, truth-telling, that might be desirable overall. Um, I like them because I, I think if you just look at a society, what you'll tend to gravitate towards are the formal structures and the defined rules. Whereas, and it's a bit like looking at a building through a photograph, and then you do like a heat scan of it. Shame is like the heat scan. If you look at Just what are the rules, you'll get one picture. But then if you look at, like, what are the norms that regular people actually feel the need to enforce in their day-to-day lives, you'll get another. So if you just look at the legal norms and rules of our society, there's not much there to suggest that it's a patriarchal one, right? All sorts of equality before the law, all of that. But then if you look at how people use shame... You get a very different picture of the underlying values of that society and that could go for quite a number of categories actually it wouldn't just be gender you could also bring race sexuality class stuff like that into it as well um i think humiliation is something a little bit more specific in that humiliation relates directly to power and so i define humiliation as the use of dominating power, understood in a sort of Republican way as arbitrary and unaccountable, the use of dominating power such that the existence of that dominating power is obvious and undeniable. If I make you do something that you would have never have done otherwise, that is to humiliate you. Um, So if I make um, a homeless man dance for me, in order to get his $10 that he needs to eat. I'm doing that to show that I'm in a position of power. Or conversely, you could have shame where, um, let's talk about it in the beauty case, where someone says, oh, your makeup doesn't look good, whatever. But then say you've got a bunch of high school girls who are ridiculing and bullying um, um, uh, one of their, their friends for the way she looks. Well, that then becomes humiliation because she would never otherwise put up with that if she had the power to stop it. And so just as shame is like your heat ray for social norms, humiliation is your heat ray, your x-ray, whatever, for power imbalances. And humiliation, where acts of humiliation occur, which is essentially the public destruction of our status claims, it's, it's showing that someone is powerless. Um, where that occurs, that's like a scan of our society to show us where power relations have gone wrong. And when you scan our society that way for where power relations have gone wrong, you see it in formal structure, certainly. But you also see it in a much broader set of social relations have clearly I don't want to say gotten power into them. It was there all along, but have clearly, are clearly imbued with power and quite strong power. And they both point to both analytic and diagnostic tools. They both point to, like, ways of seeing what's going on, but also seeing what's wrong and what needs addressing. So I'll pause there. That's sort of how I begin to think about those two concepts.
1: So that's actually really useful. So the latest paper I've written is actually about uh, structural injustice and beauty. And that will be the next comes out which is you know one of so it, it doesn't quite work for beauty right if i'm right about the norms rising and that's where the power stuff is more difficult because right, if, it's, if it's rising everywhere so for sure it gets used in some of the ways that you say like you know there's the sort of public destruction um element which is hum- humiliation as you define it right that is definitely there in some of the ways that body shaming is being used right it is meant to destroy and keep down and but it's not just as i come back right to the beginning when we started talking about gender exploitation right there's not a clear hierarchy group that remains um so the usual way that we do structural injustice is is again about what Group over another doing something to a group because of the membership of the group or, you know, Iris Mary Young's words, you know, by virtue of where they sit within the social structures. And with beauty, it's really hard to see that because people move through that and almost anybody can have that ability to humiliate almost irrespective of where they are in the normal social hierarchy and sometimes beauty unsettles that social hierarchy which is one of the ways that some anthropologists think it's all this positive stuff i don't think it is that but it is it is doing some of that so in the way you describe it i think we probably nearly not nearly always be talking about shame rather than humiliation but there are particular acts of um assertion of power that do seem to fit your definition of humiliation so like there's a big difference so for example so one of the things that we say about body shaming in the everyday lookism campaign is it doesn't matter what your intention is you shouldn't do it it's still hurtful so we have an awful lot of comments grandmas or mothers you know saying things like you know your bum looks big in that or you know you need to lose weight you know all very well-intentioned very shaming but probably not meant to humiliate in the way you define it and we do have examples very similar to the one that you describe of a group of teenage girls you know where the aim is to utterly destroy um and and to show power within you know so for instance things like you know recounting you know um, a girl walking into a canteen and you know one of the one of the girls in the dining room standing up and saying you know uh, surely you don't need to eat that you're fat enough already and um, it's not going to help your skin is it right you know that's that's what that's, that's doing and those are the kind of stories that stay and that that looks to be humiliation on your definition I would think but there's a great area
0: I think there's definitely like I mean whenever you try and do definitions you're always going to be like drawing a circle around just this blurry amorphous mass right and there's always going to be border cases yes i think one of the criticisms of my account of humiliation is that it's very restrictive like the vast majority of what you're talking about will be shame i.e. it's the enforcement of a sort of a norm right and that, that can be out of genuine belief in the norm and it can be well-intentioned. And there's also, like, in the case of beauty, there could just be, like, a rational self-interest thing where, like, I want my daughter to be happy and if this is soci- how society is going to judge her, I'd like her to be judged positively, right. you know? So there's all sorts of reasons people might enforce that norm. Yeah. And that norm could... It, it's not it's one-for-one not one with power structures. Humiliation, for my mind, is really, really narrow and the critique would go something like there's there's times you would con vent conversationally use the word humiliation that aren't captured by what you're saying to which i just say fine you know call it what you want i'm just trying to isolate a very specific phenomenon which is a destructive way in which arbitrary power is used kind of for its own sake and to just demonstrate that it can be used um and just because i think it's consequential because it's quite a narrow concept that I'm mapping out, but it, like the psychological effects of humiliation are extreme. It's profoundly damaging to people. You said earlier, that stayed with me forever. I mean, acts of humiliation stay with the victims for the rest of their lives. Sometimes it can make people angry, it can make them despondent, it can make them self-loathing. But yes, in the case of beauty, I think almost all of, the, like, like the, the, almost all of what you're talking about is shame. And then within that, there would be specific acts of of humiliation. I think.
1: I think that I think that's probably right. But I also think the fact that we can be humiliated, I think in the extremely destructive way that you're talking about, with you know anger and self-loathing state. I think that the fact that we have any accounts of that does show how important our bodies and appearance have become. It's all. It's all. It's almost amazing if you were to go back a few generations to imagine that amount of self-destruction from it's about not measuring up in the appearance stakes
0: yeah which goes to what we've both said about like the use of this as like a detection mechanism because if you just looked at formally defined rules you'd see a history let's say you said a hundred years over the last hundred years you'd see a history of just exponential, maybe ex, not exponential, but like very steep progress on gender equality, you know, starting in hundred years we're just within the right to vote, just on the borderline um and then all sorts of other reforms, non-discrimination in the workplace and so on. so that's a particular way you look at it. maybe that's like your photograph, but then if you look at what are the social norms day to day people are actually enforcing, that tells a bit of a different story over that time period like at the beginning of that period i presume you wouldn't have other women feeling other women are unhygienic for having body hair i I mean tell me if i'm wrong but i don't think right
1: Uh, i think that's probably completely correct although we did do some very weird things with radiation to get rid of facial hair we had little radio Asian booths, and unsurprisingly, that was another horrific harm that we did. We have done some pretty horrific things for beauty over over the ages, but we have not, which is part of the global thing. We have not turned it into um, health and hygiene in a way we are doing now. So, in that, I'm completely right. So, I guess so. Naomi Wolf, who was right, you know, the, the beauty myth, that wonderful nineteen ninety book, um, you know, which um, you know uh, was making that very claim that beauties are. Uh, kind of um, uh, the way that we hold people back when we've allowed women to go on in all these other ways that we do it in this less formalized way right and I think that 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 may have been true then but I think now we are you know and this is comes back you know I think that's a much harder argument to make in the context where men are doing body work too and we're all doing more and, and it becomes global so there's definitely um, lots in that about how is it that this particular type of norm that as you say is not regulated in fact the opposite is true um uh, is is nonetheless capturing our time our money um how we think of our very selves such that it's stopping us to do all kinds of things um and yes you wouldn't see that at all from uh, analysis of rules and regulations
0: okay are there any Are there any further points you want to close with on that? I guess one obvious question is like, okay, people have followed us thus far um, through the shame and humiliation stuff. And they say, okay, yeah, I can see that it's a norm that's clearly being enforced and might have significant costs. What do we do about it? So
1: I think there's lots of stuff we can do about it. The first thing that we can do is take it seriously. Too often we ignore it, we think it's trivial, um, or we just place it all back on the individual. We say, oh, you just shouldn't feel like that. So I'm quite... Um, critical of a lot of the supposedly positive messages or resilience messages which basically put it all back on the individual so you feel bad that you don't measure up and then if you don't have the right attitude and stop feeling bad it's your fault too right so first let's take it seriously second of all let's not just treat it as an individual problem and third if it's not an individual problem, what is it? Well, I think we should start treating it as a public health issue. So if it was the case that we were having so many, much devastating mental health consequences from something like a new recreational drug or a new video game that all our kids were playing, we would absolutely have done something about it. It's partly because we're set up to think, oh, it's just appearance that we haven't done something about what is an extremely devastating rise in body image anxiety. Now, you don't have to do much to look at what kids are doing and not doing to think oh my goodness we really don't want this generation completely blighted by being so worried about how they look that they're not speaking that they're not doing things that they're getting all these kind of physical and mental illnesses that they are obsessed with making their body the right body when it's impossible to measure up to unrealistic beauty ideals there is no perfect me
0: Terrific. Should we end with um, a plug for you? Um, Do you want to any anything you'd like to call our attention to our audience to your latest book, uh, some of the social media activism you've been doing? um, If people want to learn more about you or check out some of that activism, where should they go?
1: So if you just Google Everyday Lookism, you'll find the Everyday Lookism social media campaign. And if you Google Heather Widows, you will find all of my books,
0: blogs
1: and activism.
0: Perfect. Heather Widows, thank you so much for coming on.
1: Thank you so much, Toby. It's been an absolute pleasure.